Welcome to Classics Confidential. This week, we're talking about linking data. Well, I'm at our webpage for Record Gito, which is our annotation platform. And who better to introduce us to this topic than my Classics Confidential co-founder, Elton Barker, who's an expert in digital humanities. I went to visit Elton at his house so that he could tell me about linked data, starting from the annotation platform Recogito, which has been developed as an initiative of Pelagios Commons. Recogito is a free and openly available browser-based platform for annotating documents of all kinds, including texts, maps and databases. I've already registered, so I'm just logging in. I've got, a, I've got a text here, and the text is Pausanias' description of Greece. Right. So that's what I want to annotate. This is a document I want to provide enriched information about. It's like when you go to a library and you take a book out of the library, what the, what the librarians don't want you to do is to write on the book. Right. You know, that's a kind of a disaster for them. But for the digital world, precisely what you can do is to write on the text. You can provide your notes, if you like, to the text. And this is really making use of the web. The web is meant to be you know, a, a world of linking. So let's actually go in. So this is uh, Pausanias. Here we have the text of Pausanias. And then this is a process of annotation. So very basic example. The, the first uh, word that we have in the Pausanian description of Greece is Attica. That's a description of what the book is. And what, what you see here is that, uh, you know, basically I've annotated Attica as a place. I've identified it as a place in the first instance, and then I've mapped that across to the Pleiades Gazetteer. So that enables me, first of all, to be able to then see that on a map, where, you know, where Attica is, but then it also connects it into this web of data, so anybody else in their documents, no matter you know, what documents they are, anybody else who has also annotated in their document Attica and mapped it across to Pleiades, we're now connected. Connectedness is something of a leitmotif when we're talking about linked data. It's not only bits of ancient evidence that get connected, but people too, and even communities. Shortly before Elton and I met, he'd been in attendance at a conference in Madrid called Linked Pasts, where he met lots of other researchers who are interested in making these sorts of connections. We're going to hear from some of those people now starting with Valeria Vitale, who's doing her PhD at King's College London. My research is about documenting 3D models of archaeological heritage using linked open data and um, a bespoke ontology that I have written for it. So what is linked open data? Well, linked open data is a great opportunity that we have to connect information. And I think that um, it's, it's a great tool in a lot of disciplines, but I believe that it is particularly relevant for classics and uh, ancient history because we always deal with fragmentary data. And I think that linked open data really can enhance the value of that fragments because when you can start connecting fragmentary information uh, then I believe it becomes much more relevant potentially so you can start looking at patterns we can start um, discovering connections that maybe were not so evident before so what uh, maybe looked uh, like a little thing and not so important once you look at it uh, connected to 
other pieces of information, it becomes much more uh, substantial, in my opinion. And do you have a specific example in mind that you could perhaps share, drawn from your own work, perhaps? I work a lot on sources, and um, my work was basically on the representation of ancient objects and ancient places. And, for example, when you can look at uh, different representations of the same thing, because they are brought together by linked data, so they all refer to the same URI, so they all refer to the same, you know, uh, unambiguous entity, then you can compare. I'm just going to interrupt for a second because it's important to understand this concept of URIs. When Elton explained this to me, he said... You can think of them like social security numbers. URI stands for Uniform Resource Identifiers, so they're strings of characters attached to individual resources or things, which basically helps to stop them from getting muddled up. So the Greek city of Athens has a different URI from Athens in Georgia, and this, as you can imagine, helps to avoid all kinds of potential problems. We'll hear more about this later in the podcast, but now back to Valeria. When you start looking at them all together, then you can discover patterns in, you know, the interpretation of something. You can look at trends, you can look at, for example, how the representations have changed and have evolved sometimes in quite an amusing way. I've seen, you know, uh, for example, interpretations of the Temple of Isis in Pompeii being completely, you know, upturned and going for from you know a very uh, mysterious and uh, almost creepy place with those you know dodgy Egyptian uh, priests to being uh, the symbol of the pure intellect uh, in uh, you know for the Freemasonry or for you know apparently Mozart uh, took inspiration from the Temple of Isis when he uh, thought of um, the set for the magic flute. So you see, you know, two opposite interpretation of the same place, and maybe you only know one side of it, or you only know some documents. Uh, but when you see them all together, because they are brought to you together, piling data, then you see the pattern, and basically you have a much richer discourse around the object. So Valeria's research is bringing together different sources to transform our ideas about ancient monuments. Maxime Romanov is also breaking down boundaries between different types of evidence. And in his case, the aim is to deepen our understanding of the pre-modern Islamic world. My name is Maxime Romanov. Um, I'm a research fellow at uh, Leipzig University at uh, Alexander von Humboldt Chair for Digital Humanities. Uh, and uh, in, I work with um, um, Arabic, uh, Arabic texts um, as, a, as a historian of the, uh, the pre-modern Islamic world. So that's around 600 to 1500 CE, although as Maxime explains... In our work we're trying not to impose boundaries geographically and, and chronologically, but rather go with the textual data that we have. So at the moment, uh, chronologically, we extend up until actually the early 20th and, and sometimes even the middle of the 20th century, uh, as long as the text is sort of a build on the tradition that goes back into the Middle Ages. The corpus that Maxim's working with includes around 5,000 Arabic texts with an overall volume of around 800 million words. 
One element of his project is focused on biographical texts and specifically how these can help us to recreate how people experience the geography of the Arabic world. Biographical texts, um, uh, which is a, a very peculiar genre of Arabic, uh, of Arabic literature, are very often called tabaqat, the generations, uh, where you have uh, dozens, dozens to hundreds to thousands, tens of thousands of biographies per source, which is perhaps the most valuable data for social studying social history that we have up until 1500. Um, we get into a problem of how you take this huge amount of, of biographical data and uh, try to sort of put it on a map. The goal is to use the biographical collections to inform the route searching algorithm. So let's say, and, and the idea is that, uh, let's say you can go uh, from Baghdad to Damascus, uh, the shortest path will be through the desert. That's a suicide. Um, nobody would, would ever do that. So you would go through the area of Jazeera, which is which is a, uh, upper Mesopotamia that connects uh, Syria and, 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 and Iraq. Um, and uh, we kind of, by modifying our algorithm, we almost got to, to the right route. But um, it kind of still uh, avoided uh, the city of Raqqa, which would be the, the ma one of the major cities that you would definitely go through, largely because you would have uh, scholars there. And, and, and uh, the way people sort of uh, organize their travel itinerary would be to go through the major centers of learning so that they could in, um, also increase their cultural capital by studying with, with famous people of the time. And um, one of the ideas that we have, we haven't implemented it yet, but um, take the, the information from these biographical dictionaries and let's say if we have a lot of people associated with a particular place, it sort of starts acting as a magnet that, that, that sort of modifies the route. Is that, okay, you're not going to skip the city because there are a lot of people you would very much like to meet, study with, and, and, and kind of increase your social cultural capital. That sounds like an amazing project which can help ancient geography become animated with real characters and stories. But of course there are many technical and theoretical challenges to overcome in this type of work, including the problem of disambiguating data, which goes back to that earlier point about URIs. Let's hear from Professor Kai Christian Brun, who is visiting Madrid from Mainz. Hi, my name is Kai Christian Brun, the full name. I'm from the University of Applied Sciences Mainz, in the middle of Germany, close to Frankfurt. And I'm a professor for interdisciplinary applications of information and surveying technologies. I am a classical archaeologist by training and I worked in Egypt for quite a long time. And I got specialized in dealing with the data, not only from archaeological excavations, but also from other kinds of research projects. Um, so that is my main focus uh, since I am in Mainz, is uh, that, and I identified that interoperability of those data is the main issue. And what do you mean by interoperability? Interoperability is that if I make a statement in my data about the, the data, the meaning, what I really want to express, I need to do it in a way that's not only understood by humans, but it's only understood, uh, it's also understood by um, the machine, by the computer. And why is that important? That is important that if we want to have data fully analyzed and if we want to get 
down to the real potentials of digital data in our research. We need to have techniques that the data extracted from different research projects really can find each other and we can tell them what the other what one data set and the other data set has in common. Of course in the humanities you have so many concepts which are not that specific in so such as um, such as Babylon. Do I mean the Roman Babylon which is in well, in Cairo? Or do I mean Babylon, which is situated uh, in, in what's now Lebanon? Or do I know? Uh, do I mean the Babylon, which used to be a huge town uh, in Mesopotamia? Um, what do I mean with um, a, a place concept uh, like I don't know, Atlantis, which never existed? But if I want to use it as a as a t term, people refer to. Um, then I can, I have an uh, address in the net and I can uh, point to it and if I point to it I get back the information for my information system, for my data and can include it. And if several people refer to the same or several data sets refer to the same concept, then those data are, can communicate. So. I can query them, I can ask them, what do you have on Babylon by means of archaeological objects? And uh, I get, do not get back all the, 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 the material from Iraq, from Lebanon and from Cairo, but I can make the distinction. Now, one of the most tangible benefits of linked data seems to be how it can help to connect the university sector with the so-called glam sector. So that's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. The keynote speaker at the Madrid Linked Pasts conference was Rob Sanderson, who has what could be the world's coolest job title. I am the uh, semantic architect uh, at the J. Paul Getty Trust, uh, most well known for the, the museum in, in Los Angeles. Um, so to explain semantic architect, uh, semantic, of course, um, dealing with the meaning of, of things, um, so around uh, what we mean by the data that we publish about our, our resources, um, both within the museum but also um, in the other programs, so the Research Institute, which is a library and an archive, and the Conservation Institute, which is a more scientific research um, organisation looking at how to conserve uh, art objects over time. Uh, so that's the semantic side. Architect, um, I think, is actually particularly accurate uh, in that architects need to design things which are both functional and beautiful at the same time. Uh, so um, this comes to how to publish the data in a, a useful and understandable, uh, but still um, meeting the needs uh, of the users. Um, and how to build information systems um, that can facilitate that both within the organisation um, and beyond uh, within the community. So for example, if we have a painting uh, and there is a, another painting in a different museum uh, of the same, the same idea, uh, say a, a self-portrait of the artist, then we can link to that other museum's um, description of their painting uh, or of 
perhaps the material resentments and, and so forth. In a previous life, I heard that you were a medievalist, so I'm just wondering if you could put your medievalist hat back on. Mm-hmm. How would you... Uh, how would you talk about this to a medievalist colleague? What would you get out of it as a medievalist? So one of the, um, I think, critical aspects uh, for linked data for medievalists or other um, perhaps underrepresented um, communities within um, the humanities uh, is that it enables individual people or projects or institutions to publish information about the things that they are expert on um, in a way that they can be used uh, in the same way as any other um, data published by anyone else. So, for example, you could imagine uh, a project that was studying 14th century uh, Islamic texts or um, other non-Western European content uh, where there is significantly underrepresented um, in... Uh, the scholarly discourse, and to be able to bring that forward, uh, you know, in exactly the same way, so that it integrates well um, with other organisations' data. So you can imagine publishing the descriptions of the um, the artists or the authors of the artefacts that remain, um, that sort of thing. So it kind of gives you um, a way to be part of the community. Um, at an academic level, as well as being part of the sort of technical infrastructure in which um, the community can then use the information that those projects are uh, producing uh, along with all of the, the rest of the information. So linked data can iron out some of the latent hierarchies that exist in historical scholarship and help us work towards giving equal visibility to sources from different periods and places. This seems pretty revolutionary. Back at Elton's house, I asked him how much linked data represents a paradigm shift in classical scholarship. So what you're describing, it seems very different from the the traditional imagined way of working as a scholar, you know, sitting at the desk and working in relative isolation. It's different and at the same time, it's what we do. I mean, if you think of... One of the basic scholarly things that we do, which is to, um, when we're, no matter what we're writing about, we always need to provide authority for what we're writing or to connect information. We're doing that all the time as scholars, particularly as classicists, because a classic is such an interdisciplinary uh, subject anyway. There's literature, but in order to write about literature, you really have to know a little bit about the history, ideally perhaps archaeology, art history, so all of the philosophy, so all of this is connected anyways. It's what we do as scholars, and the other, the other aspect of what we do as scholars, of course, is the footnote, the humble footnote, where you make those links explicit for a human reader, so that, you know, um, you know, you're writing. You're, 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 maybe you're reading a particular text, and you and you, you're reading this particular idea, and you follow. Oh, look, there's one of those annoying little numbers. It's a footnote. You look at the bottom of the page. You see C. Barker, two thousand and nine. So then, that, there's there's the link. You're providing a link. Just imagine if it wasn't just C. Barker, two thousand and nine. It was you could link through not only to C. Barker, two thousand nine, but the specific 
passage, you know, the reference in Barker 2009, she can see what this bloody Barker has to say about this place. Anyway, now, I don't agree with that at all, but you can actually you know, get to that immediately. That's, that's the linked data word. So it's a, it is very different from um, certainly how I did my PhD, which was you know, in the library, surrounded by books, not talking to anybody or the occasional grunt or whatever to a world which is much more collaborative, much more open. So that's the real, I think, paradigm shift. But on the other hand, it's, it's really picking up on what we've been doing anyway as scholars, which is always trying to connect information, looking for patterns, um, linking to what other people have said, even if that link is to uh, show disagreement or dissent or uh, building on. Have another biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Classics Confidential. It was produced by Elton Barker and Jessica Hughes, that's me, and also featured the voices of Valeria Vitale, Maxim Romanov, Kai Christian Brun and Rob Sanderson. Do come and join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag ClassicsConfide. Until next time, 